0: We're, uh, I just want to warn you ahead of time, there's a lengthy scripture passage today. There's, uh, it, it, and I struggle sometimes with reading, so um, there's two verses. That's it. I want to remind you that we're in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and it's the By Faith series. Now, the author of Hebrews is showing the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, that Christ is the Messiah, and he's trying to show them that there, if you look back in history, you'll see that with all of their patriarchs, their heroes of the faith, that, that he's done much to show them and to point them toward Jesus, toward the cross. And he starts this passage off by saying, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And I think that's a great great passage. It's a great reminder. Uh, But as Christians, who is our hope? So faith is being certain, sure of what we hope for, that's Christ, and certain of what we do not see, that's everlasting life with Christ, that's that's redemption. We don't see it in everyone's life all the time, but that God will one day rule over all, that God, that the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, that is our hope, and that's, that's, that's what we don't see yet. And then he gives examples of people that have done extraordinary things, except for one. There's one person in this list that doesn't have much of a testimony. He's kind of remarkably unremarkable. And that's who we're going to talk about today. When I picked this passage as a kind of an excuse to go back and look at some of those stories that we're familiar with, but not familiar with to kind of remind us um, like, man, I've never preached on Isaac. Uh, that Isaac put it in the worship schedule. And then I, the last couple of weeks, I've been reading about Isaac and I'm going to summarize his life for you in about three minutes in a minute. It, unremarkable wonderfully unremarkable. So here's what it says about Isaac. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. That is his testimony. That is his litany of all things that Isaac accomplished, according to the author of Hebrews. Not much there. So let me tell you about Isaac. Now, we know about Isaac, Genesis 22. But we know about Abraham and his wife, Sarah. They were very old and, and, and God had promised them a child and that all people, all nations will be blessed because of their lineage, but they're, they didn't have a lineage. And so they tried, to, they tried to make one themselves and then God said, no, that's not how it's going to be. And God brought about Isaac, or excuse me, Abra, or Abraham, Isaac, sorry, Isaac's so unremarkable I can't remember his name. Um, and then in Genesis 22, God tested Abraham and he said, are you willing to trust me so much that you will sacrifice your son because I'm asking you to. And he, he, he got right to the point of almost killing his son. And then the angel of God said, don't do it. Now that I know that you fear God and that you love me more than Isaac, I'm not going to ask you to do that. And then they, he provided a ram for the, for the, for the offering. And, but that's really kind of what we know about Isaac. He didn't really do anything except ask his dad, I see the, I see the wood and the fire, but, or, but where's the ram for the burnt offering? And his dad said, well, <laughs> it could be you. And then Isaac, the last thing we hear about Isaac is Abraham's getting old. And he says to one of his servants, I want you to swear a vow that you will go somewhere else. I don't want my kid to marry some one of these Canaanite people. So I want you to go back to my family, find him a wife. And that, 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 uh, that, that servant went off. And he he came to a well near the place where where Abraham's family had settled, and he said to the Lord, Lord, I'm gonna, the, when women come by here to get water, I'm going to ask them for a drink, and then if they offer to water my camels, I will know that's the woman you picked for for Isaac. That doesn't seem like that big of an uh, that, that extraordinary of a thing, but just so you know. Camels, when they have not, they've been traveling through the desert, through the Negev, for a long time, they can drink at one time up to 25 gallons of water. And he had a dozen or more camels with him. So, for a woman to say, here, have a sip, and I'll water your camels, her, her container was about three gallons. So, she's basically committing to about a day, day and a half, of going, going down into this cave, to the, to the well, and then coming back up to make sure that the camels had all their fill. Now, that says something extraordinary about the woman who is to be Isaac's wife, but it doesn't say something extraordinary about Isaac. So sure enough, Rebecca comes and offers, can you give me a drink? Yeah, and let me water your camels as well. They do this little deal. I don't like the terminology, but, but that's how they did it back then. He, gave, he put a ring in her nose and put bracelets on her on her arms, and asked if she could come and marry Isaac. And, and they said, well, let me keep her for a little while. Nah, nah. Um, she decided to go anyway. So they go, and then from afar, she sees Isaac when they're after days and days of journey, sitting on a camel, I'm guessing. And she sees him and goes, who's that? Well, that's the one you're going to marry. So they got together. They got married. Boom. Now, later on, we hear about Isaac. He has a little—Rebecca's the, the, having trouble getting pregnant, so he prays, and he says, Lord— for this lineage to continue, you got to do something here, and I, uh, Esau and Jacob, came into be. And there's some cool stories about them, but they, we don't hear much about that right here. And then they go off, and Abimelech, who's a, who's a kind of a local ruler, they kind of set up camp around Abimelech, and and. Isaac did what his dad did, and he said, well, yeah, she's not my wife. She's my sister. But she never really, he never really handed her over. It got a little weird. And then the Abimelech asked him to leave, and they stopped up all the wells that, Jacob had, or that Isaac had, had dug. And then so they dug some more, and then they contested those, and they dug some more, and they contested those. Finally, Isaac went off, and he dug some wells, and everything was good. That's Isaac's life. Not much more to it. When he gets old and he can't see, one of his sons tricks him out of his other son's blessing. Isaac blesses him. And he, he, what, what, what God had said to Abraham, he did not say to Isaac, but Abraham passed it on to Isaac. And Isaac trusted his dad enough to trust his father's God. And so he knew, he's kind of the placeholder. He knew that if the promise that God, the covenant that God had with Abraham was to be fulfilled, he needed to pass it on through his sons. And he did. Not much of a testimony. He had some things. God blessed him. I mean, he had a lot of good stuff. He had, as far as Bedouin lives can be, he didn't, he wasn't a warring person. It didn't get real ugly in his life. And his, his wife was faithful and, and his kids grew up. And we we're going to talk more about Jacob tomorrow. But Isaac's just remarkably unremarkable. Let me tell you a couple of stories. Clarence Jordan, has anyone ever heard that name? Back in 1940, he founded a farm in America's Georgia. It happens to be the town I was born in. Um, uh, But Clarence was very, remarkably, gifted, gifted man. He had two PhDs, one in agriculture and another in Greek and Hebrew. He could have done anything. But in 1940, he founded a farm in America's Georgia called Koinonia Farm. Koinonia is just a Greek word that means fellowship. And what was going on in America's Georgia in the deep south in the 40s and then into the 50s was unbelievable racial tension. And there were poor people that were both African-American and Anglo. And people had kind of, they were so, over the course of this 14 years, people had gotten so entrenched and so angry. Even within the church, the church was believing that God had set up this culture of segregating the races. Just wasn't the way it was supposed to be. But Christian people were arguing and fighting to try to keep things the way they were, Not, not not it's kind of foreign to us. I know that my my mom she grew up in Albany, Georgia. In the uh, she was born in '44, so it, when she was early teens, the whole uh, teens and then early twenties, when Martin Luther King and all the all that stuff, there was a march in Albany, Georgia. And I remember my mom telling me that her that my grandma and grandma had, or my grandpa grandma and grandma that my grandma and grandpa had told her when those marches and protests were coming to Albany, don't go downtown because there might be tear gas, there might be shootings, there might be riots. So it's hard for us in 2018 to look back and understand how ugly things got. But this Clarence Jordan, set he created this farm for poor African-American people and poor Anglo people to live in community with one another, work the farm, and provide for their families. Now, it's ironic that some of the resistance to this Koinonia farm was within the church, but it was. The town people tried everything they could to stop Clarence They tried boycotting him. They tried slashing workers' tires when they came into town. Over and over for 14 years, they tried to stop him. Finally, in 1954, the Ku Klux Klan had 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 enough of Clarence Jordan and his Koinonia farm in this racially integrated community that he had set up. And so they decided to get rid of him once and for all. Uh, They they came one night with guns and torches, and they set fire to every building on Koinonia farm except for Clarence's house. But that house they riddled with bullets. And they ran off every single family that was there except for one African-American family who refused to leave. Clarence recognized the voices when they were yelling and they were doing all their stuff and making all their threats, Re- recognized their voices of many of the Klansmen. And as you might guess, some of them were church people. Another was a local newspaper reporter. The next day that reporter came out to, uh, to see what remained of the farm and the rubble still smoldered, the land was scorched, but he found Clarence in the field hoeing and planting. And I don't do a very good, I won't, do a, I won't try to do Clarence, his, his accent, because that's a sophisticated southern accent, that Belvedere, come here, boy. I don't do that well. My grandpa had that accent. I do the other, less sophisticated, a little bit better, because that's my native tongue. So the reporter came up, came up to Clarence, and he said, I heard the awful news. I came out to do a story on the tragedy of your farm closing. Clarence just kept hoeing and planting. The reporter kept prodding, he kept poking, he kept trying to get a rise out of him, uh, this quietly determined man who seemed to be planting instead of packing his bag. So finally, the reporter said in a haughty voice, well, Dr. Jordan, you got two of them PhDs, and you put 14 years into this farm, and there's nothing left of it, at all, just how successful you think you are. And Clarence stopped, hoeing. And he turned toward the reporter with penetrating blue eyes. That's what, the, that's what the illustration here says. And said quietly but firmly, well, we're about as successful as the cross. Sir, I don't think you understand us. What we're about is not success, but faithfulness. We're staying. Good day. Cornelia Farm is still just outside of America's Georgia. What is it? Great, good story. Tragic but that a man would define himself and his ministry not with the success, but as faithful. A quiet, dignified Southern man who in the midst of the worst of our nation, Jim Crow laws and treating people, it's called thingification, treating people like they're things, not like they're people. And trying to be, Racially reconciling, beginning with the poor. And people trying, in God's name, trying to say, you stop. And when he lost everything, he went back and just started over. Why? Because faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. He had a faith like Isaac. Isaac was a man who didn't do anything really extraordinary, but he lived an entire life being faithful to the God who promised to be faithful to all of us. If Isaac had decided, you know, that was my dad's faith, it's not really my thing, I've never heard from God, then we don't get the good news. A friend of mine, Joe, really his name, He's one of the few people I know that actually laughs like a cartoon character, or like a comic book. Ha ha, ha 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 ha! He grew up right here on Alice Street in Zealand, and he, parents were Christian folks, went to church, went to Christian school. Good kid. I mean, came through high school, got in a little bit of trouble, not more than most, and, and he, when he went off to college, though, he went way out west, so he wouldn't see anyone he knows, anything like that. He became kind of a ski bum and a snowboard bum, and he ingested some things into his body that, 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 that he probably shouldn't have ingested. Um, he, he, he hung out with some people. He just didn't make his parents proud, okay? Let's just put it that way. And he failed out. And when he came home, his dad sat him down, and he said, Joe, you don't get many opportunities in, in this life, and you blew one. Don't blow this one. Kind of a second chance. And over the next weeks and months, Joe kind of came around. He's probably in the early 40s right now. Um, But this is back late teens, early 20s. And he just started realizing that, yeah, he kind of blew it. And then started taking up his side of the relationship that God had with him. And became a devoted follower of Christ. And what he found out, though, later, is that there were some elderly widowed women in his church that was that story started trickling back from out West about Joe and his lifestyle choices. They started praying. They started praying that he would come back to Jesus, not to Zealand, but to Jesus. And, and when he found that out, he realized that God had been kind of poking him on the shoulder all that time. And he credits those widowed women for his renewed faith. They have faith like Isaac. And I don't ever like to call a woman, Isaac, but They had Isaac type faith, just quiet, faithful, trusting God. And when something's not working, praying, asking God to do so. There's a man named Jim Rayburn who founded Young Life. It's a non-denominational Christian outreach. It's worldwide. It's what brought I came to Christ through Young Life in 1981. Um, It's also a ministry that I worked for for three years when I got out of college. Pastor Chris Peters worked for Young Life for three years when he was out of college. It's a great and wonderful ministry, but I want you to know that Jim Rayburn, when he started this, he, he was an associate or a youth pastor in a church, and he started going to the school, the local high school, to meet kids where they were instead of asking them to come meet him. Now, he, he, he was, he, youth ministry today, we kind of understand back then, you, you, kids are supposed to show up, they're supposed to be quiet, they're supposed to become just like their parents and be done with it. But he started this club, I think it was club 14. Uh, he didn't want the kids to think it was the first one. So started this club 14 and started student after student, teen after teen, kid after kid came to know Jesus. And what he found out though, after this thing kind of exploded was that there had been some women in a house across the street from the school that when they saw these kids walking out, now this is in the, it's in the fifties, but when they saw the kids walking out of the school, this is when it was a really big deal. Like, oh my gosh, these kids might be losing their faith because they light up smokes and they walk down the street. And so these women started praying, Lord, save them. Send someone to them that will introduce them to you. And Jim Rayburn, when he started telling the story to those kids, he said, he said that, that, that this is the greatest love story ever told. And because of these women praying, God started a revival on that campus. And I ended up coming to Christ because those women prayed and Jim planted that club and he planted another one, he planted another one. Young Life took over. And then later, I got to, I got to be a part of leading club number four, which is actually club number 18 in Elmhurst, Illinois. Because of some women who were faithful, they just prayed. The least they could do was the most they could do. So folks, if you're someone that don't, you don't think you have much of a testimony. And I get it. This is a, we, this say-so thing that we're doing. If you, if you want to come and tell your story, you might go, I don't have much of a testimony. I mean, I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents love me. I've known for my whole life that Jesus loves me. And yeah, I've made some mistakes along the way. And I drifted a little bit in high school. But when I came back, when I had kids, I looked at them. I went, oh, oh. I want them to know Jesus. I mean, those are the vows I made to my daughter when I held her for the very first time. I looked down and they were, I will be your spiritual shield and you will always know that God loves you and you will know what Jesus did for you. that's, That's what I wanted for her and that's what she got. So you think you don't have much of a testimony, but it's the testimony I wanted for my daughter. It's the testimony I wanted for my son. It's the testimony that those of you who have kids want for your kids. So why isn't that a remarkable testimony? It's not much of a testimony. I mean, I didn't kill anybody. I, didn't, I wasn't a member of ISIS and then repented and came back. I, 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 haven't, I haven't been addicted to anything. I haven't abandoned my family or I haven't had anyone abandon me. Okay. We want those remarkable, extraordinary stories. I mean, God uses unexpected people to do impossible things in ridiculous ways. Great. Let's have those stories, but let's don't fail to tell the ones that God seems to highlight. Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed his sons according to their future. If you're a quiet, prayerful man or woman of God, if you're someone who gets no attention or no notoriety for your faithfulness, understand, please, this, this one thing, that just as Jesus, when he tells us that gone are your sins like a morning mist, or gone are your offenses like the morning mist, your sins I just got that one. Gone are your sins like the morning mist, and your offenses like a cloud. Return to me for I have redeemed you. And just as God says, I will separate your sin from you and I will separate it as far as the east is from the west. He chooses to remember your sin no more. If God is capable, the one who knows everything, if he's capable of remembering your sin no more, not holding that against you, he's also capable, he's also willing and it seems to be that God wants you to know this, that every quiet, faithful deed Every time you pray, when you could just say, "Eh." every person you encourage and no one, every time God chooses to never forget it. I look forward to meeting you in glory and hearing your story. When God, when when God, if, if we run into each other, I don't know how it all works, but if I run into you, and you go, you know, there, there were all these people when I came in and, and Jesus gave me this hug and then he introduced me to this. One person I've never even heard of, they, they died 25 years after I did. But evidently there was someone that I encouraged in Sunday school class one day and they led someone else to the Lord. And then they, they had a kid that was a missionary and that person in Papua New Guinea led someone to the Lord. And that person came up and thanked me. Why? Because they were quietly, faithful, humble servants of the God of the universe. If you are an Isaac, praise be to God for your ministry. I'm a Jacob. We'll hear more about Jacob next week. But I fight with God until I recognize that he's going to win. I usually put something out of socket. We'll talk about that more next week. When Lynn and I were first married, um, we were kind of, it was kind of that thing where, well, who are you in scripture? Who do you most identify with? I'm like, man, I wish I was a Paul. And she goes, yeah, but you're a Peter. Ready, fire, aim. Peter's the guy that sunk, right? Peter's the guy that said, I'll never deny you. And then a couple hours later, he's denying him like crazy. You ever hear the, the name Andrew in scripture? I think he shows up two times. He led Peter to the Lord. He's an Isaac. You don't hear much more about him. I know that Pastor Doug, a couple of weeks ago, um, he expanded on the story of Billy Graham and how he came to Christ. And I, I've said the story before because it's how I read it and how I remember it, but I watched his funeral the other day, and, and I, I heard some more, some more elaboration of it. I thought that, that the guy that led Billy Graham to the Lord kept going to a shoe store to take him to this revival, um, but he finally got him to go because he let him drive his brand new pickup truck. Turns out that's not the case. It was a jalopy. It was an old beat-up flatbed truck with three on the tree with no power or anything, but he kept going, kept going, and all these guys had to sit on the back of this truck to go to this revival. And this guy came, and he came day after day after day to Billy Graham's shoe shop where he's selling shoes, and he finally said, if you come with me, you can drive my truck. Doesn't sound very attractive, but Billy Graham went. He came to the Lord, and he's preached to more than 200, or two. 20 million, I don't even remember, more people than any other human being has ever preached to in the history of the world. Billy Graham. Do you know who, Bill, who, who the guy is that let him drive his truck? Do you know? remember his name? Huh? Do you? I don't know it. Most of us don't, but we know who Billy Graham is. That guy was an Isaac. If you're an Isaac, thank you. And praise God for it. We'll give you one small little story to end with. One stormy night, that's how all stories and preaching illustrations go. One stormy night, an elderly couple entered a lobby of a small hotel in a small town and asked for a room. And the clerk, they're all filled, as is every hotel in town, which is probably two or three. And then he said, but I can't send, you, can't send a fine couple like you out in the rain. Would you be willing to sleep in my room? Well, they're polite people. They're like, of course, I'm not going to tell I mean, this poor little guy, he's got to sleep and he's got to work and it's obviously really crowded. He insisted. So they did. The next morning when they came and they settled up, he said, the, the elderly gentleman said, you're the kind of man who should be managing the best hotel in the United States. Someday I'll build one for you. And the clerk goes, okay, thank you, whatever. A few years later, that clerk received a letter from that elderly man, and he recalled that stormy night, and he asked the, the clerk to come to New York, and he included in the letter a round-trip ticket. Now, that was back when you didn't have to have all ID. You could just have a ticket, and you show up, and you get to go on a plane. Some of us remember it. When the clerk arrived, his host, that elderly man, took him to the corner of 5th Avenue and 34th Street, where, where stood a magnificent, beautiful new hotel. That, explained the man, is the hotel that I have built for you to manage. The man was William Waldorf Astor, and the hotel was the original Waldorf Astoria. The clerk, George C. Bolt, became its first manager. Now, that's something extraordinary. But where did it come from? An ordinary act of Christian charity. You don't have a place to stay? Stay in my room. Nothing extraordinary about that. And God is a God who does extraordinary things with ordinary elements and ordinary people. Think about, think about communion. What a wonderful, phenomenal thing, this representation of, of God and his sacrifice for us and his desire to be in communica- communion with us and his, his desire to give us grace. Imagine how wonderful that is. But you know what? Every culture on this planet understands what bread is and what wine is. It's just basic. It's ordinary. And God does extraordinary things through it. God will take your ordinary faith and the extraordinary work that he wants to do through it. You may never know, but faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you don't see. You may not have much of a testimony, but God wants to tell you, oh yeah, you do. Because if your testimony was about you, it might seem extraordinary, but it detracts from the one we hope for. If your testimony is ordinary, it's because it's not about you and it is because of God. All of these people believe God for the people that would come after them. So if you're someone who believes God and you're praying for those who come behind you, your children, their children, young people in the church, our new church plant, whatever it might be, thank you on behalf of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to offer a prayer, and we're not quite done with the service. We've got two introductions. They'll be brief. And then we're going to ordain Nate as he goes off to plant a church so that he goes with our authority and we also have accountability with him and the team. So that won't take a real long time. If you absolutely must leave, feel free to do so. Nate will be insulted, but I will not. Um, So let's pray together and then we'll invite Nate and Greg and Renee and Chris up. Almighty God, we bless you and praise you and thank you for who you are And what you've done. We thank you for people like Isaac, not just the ones that show up in Scripture, Lord, but the ones that fill the pews of this church. Thank you, Lord, that you choose to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things that we may never know. Thank you that you never forget the quiet faithfulness of your people. Lord, as we lay hands on, as we introduce two new people, and as we lay hands on Nate, we ask that you put your blessing on all of these people, and that you use us to be a blessing to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen.